and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. I'm the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Derek Cohen, our Vice President of Policy at TPPF. So, you know, have you just been vacationing these last <laughs> couple of weeks because, you know, session's out and, you know, you got nothing to do? Well, yeah. Well, you know, just like during session, you know, it's short days, banker's hours, usually home by 3 p.m., that kind of stuff. Didn't say which day, 3 p.m., but... Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no. As you know, Brian, <laughs> we've been the taking day. the uh, we've been taking the show on the road, uh, much like we've had the uh, the event here, the primer, uh, the panel recap primer mm-hmm. here. We ended up uh, up in Dallas, Fort Worth yesterday with two events uh, covering the same thing. Obviously, a lot of victories to be mentioned, a lot of stuff still left on the table, and setting that optimistic tone for the rest of the special session. Yeah, so as I said, single. Yeah, um, but yeah, setting that optimistic tone because I think a lot of folks. kind of lack that perspective of the fact that a lot of things have been accomplished and having sanguinity and clarity on that makes it more likely the other stuff will be as well. And it's always good to get out of Austin. I mean, this is kind of a bubble, especially during session with all the focus here. We're only two blocks from the Capitol, so it's even more of a bubble uh, sometimes for us. So it's good. Uh, It's good to get out. Uh, So how are the people of Texas? Uh, They're great. They're great. I will say, though, were they excited about the session or they what what was some feedback? It was mixed. It was mixed. And and first of all, I I think some of it was because it was more humid than Houston in DFW (laughs) yesterday, which was a whole other thing. But I, I think that if you were to pull the average Texan, which we do, I think you would ha- have some, especially those who follow, that have very high marks for several of the initiatives uh, that went through this year. Mm-hmm. But some of them would have that pal in comparison to some of the opportunities left uh uh, left on the table. So an incomplete then really from the from the at least the yeah. activists and the folks that are really plugged in uh, yeah. coming to these kinds yeah, of and events. And they're definitely not wrong. I mean, we've been promised property tax relief for session after session after session. And the mo- you know, it's like that me that uh, that pawn shop meme where it's like well, the best I can do is make sure your bills don't go up as high as or as fast as they were before. Right. Uh, but we've been promised that year after year. And, you know, here we are so close and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Yeah. But people are feeling the pinch there. And, of course, obviously the big elephant in the room, which, you know, as you would say that we're obligated to discuss, is mm-hmm. uh, is uh, school choice. And I know that there's a lot of parents that we met in both uh, engagement uh, activities yesterday, both in the Fort Worth area and the Dallas area, who have many different issues with uh Parental, uh, the parental empowerment work. Uh, some of them wanted full ESA, full school choice. Other ones have uh, more grave concerns about content, about the use of technology in classrooms. All these things are, are are things that you know analogs and smaller bites at the apple did happen this session. Yeah. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they want that big th- that big pie in the sky which they were promised. And again, the optimistic tone saying. I think that's going to happen. So there wasn't just an overwhelming, huge uh, standing ovation for not having to take your car in to get inspected anymore. Uh, well, that, it was, <laughs> but it was led only by, uh, but only by me. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's uh, let's do a little bit of housekeeping first, uh, as I like to do at the beginning of the show. As always, we'd love for you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. It's called the Post. It's kind of a wrap up of everything TPPF is taking a look at and following and working on, as well as some other uh, state issues, national issues. You can sign up for that newsletter at texaspolicy.com/slash/the-post. Uh, there's exclusive content in there as well, uh, so it's not just a rehash of everything that we 
we do. Uh, we're also excited that we get our producer back. Uh, we've got uh, Jefferson, is, uh, the man behind the lens, is back this week. Uh, so I always like to give a shout out to him. And then third, um, we're going to do, um, now that we're in the special session and, and you know, certainly not as much as going on as has been happening the last three months, um, we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna now move the show to every other week um, as opposed to just every week. And so we'll have a lot more content to kind of uh, uh, generate over the next couple of weeks um, as, as things move forward. But uh, but just as a uh, just as a note to our our loyal listeners and viewers, uh, we're going to do it every couple of weeks. As uh, Derek said, there's going to be some travel, some some tours. Uh, hopefully, we'll be in your area. If you want to know if we're coming to your area to do those kinds of events, uh, just check out our events page at TexasPolicy.com. Okay, um, on today's show. We're going to talk about the real property tax problem. Um, Governor Abbott makes DEI DOA on campus. There's been some bill signings here. Um, he's also uh, signed the parent protection bill. Uh, a couple of parent protection bills made to the governor's desk that we we'll want to highlight for you. Uh, you've heard of California dreaming. Well, one California state senator says you need to do some California leaving. Um, which is exactly what our producer did. Uh, so um, uh, Jefferson, we might even have you on to give your thoughts. Um, and then uh, just thought of an interesting story at the, that I that came across my desk. Uh, cigarette companies apparently are highly ethical companies that you should invest in, according to some ESG rankings. And so I thought that was an interesting story. We'll hit that later. Uh, but first, you know, before we get to the, to the the hot topics of the week, the hottest topic going on right now is the hot, hot weather. Um, so I wanted to just uh, start off with something fun and see, Derek, with 150-degree weather on mm. its way, it's Texas, it's June. Mm. Do you have any ideas or, or solutions for our listeners to beat the heat? Absolutely, and I, I really we should have reached out to this company and arranged like a promo code where you know we get well, a. There's uh, still time. We can yeah. always edit, right, Jefferson? Well, we'll have to guess what it is. Enter, uh, yeah, enter the right idea. No, no. One of the things that I recommend, especially folks who have, uh, uh, you know, maybe smaller backyards or 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 what have you, is one of the things that we have had in the Midwest um, that we start to see down here is basically stock tank pools. Mm. You know, essentially what you would use to, I, I use a term and we use up there, water a cow. Mm. What you would uh, use that basically a, a trough in which they drink out of. Uh, you a trough? Well, not necessarily a trough. It's like a circular trough, okay. uh, which okay. I, which I guess that makes it not a definitionally not a trough. You know, I, look, if we're gonna get into <laughs> semantics of water vessels. You know, you know I, I just want you to finish it because now the mental picture is just like you know one of the, some of those old Western movies where but, they take a bath in the yeah, trough. but there are, I would say, but there are those troughs, but those are <laughs> like used more horse for drinking ice and out recovery. of the other side. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. So horse trough in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, come on, Brian. We're professionals here. Now, okay, uh, but but yeah, like a circular one, say six to you know six, eight, ten feet mm. across. Um, put a lining in there, drill holes on the side that they plug in a smaller pool filter, and they essentially are like little mini pools. <laughs> and and the thing is, with a very small footprint, you can actually do that. Like I said, I know there's uh, you know like stock tank social club and cowboy pools and stuff like that. Like I said, again, wow. it's all, a whole all community free, of yeah, all this free air, <laughs> people swimming um, in horse troughs. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, you know, you know what this, this, this anti-troughist attitude you have is belies your elitist. Right? You know, may, maybe at a Cranbrook or wherever you went to school, they don't have horse troughs. They do not. No. But in Toledo, mm-hmm. Ohio, let me tell you how it is, Brian. Okay. But, but no, all that to say is that, that obviously downtown. You know, if you live close to downtown, though parking's a nightmare and becoming worse. Uh, obviously, have access to some great uh, spring-fed pools, whether it's Deep Eddy or... Um, there you or, go. Uh, 
or uh, oh shoot, Zo- what's, oh, yeah, what am I thinking? Barton about? Springs. Yeah, Barton Springs. Oh yeah, my goodness. Of course. Yeah. Well, um, and that's just here in Austin. My solution is stay inside. Yeah. You know, I mean, I look at these lists about how to beat the heat, how to beat the heat, and all of them are like, go outside. I'm like, no, stay inside. I mean, mm-hmm. that's you know, that's what separates us from the Neanderthals is air condition, right? Yeah. So, this is Texas. Stay inside. Anyway, all right. Well, that's enough. Yeah, of Diane Fossey wrote a whole thing about that. That once the gorillas <laughs> discovered, uh, you know, how to basically pump in cold air, mm-hmm. that then they started watching R- TV right around out of the yeah. rainforest. Yeah, <laughs> straight out of the rainforest. Okay, we have wasted too much time. Um, all right. Well, let's get to uh, some more serious topics. Um, obviously. Obviously, the big one is is property tax and what's going to happen and and uh, you know and and all of the back and forth that's going on up at uh, the Capitol. Um, you know, one thing I want to focus on is look. The the good news is is that everybody agrees that we're going to get 18 billion in property tax. You know how that uh, goes down. All those details will come out. It seems like you know sometimes they're getting close uh, to making a decision. But the good news is we're going to get a ton yep. of property tax. Um, what I think that belies though is especially with all the media coverage over the back and forth or over the disagreements on how to do that is that uh, you don't focus on where the problem actually comes from. And that's why we talk about the real property tax problem, which is that it comes from the local level, that the local governments are the ones who set the rates. And as our property values was great, they are all going up, that of course means that as the the if they've set a certain rate, all of our you know bills are going to go up. Now, what a responsible local government would do is to say, okay, because we're getting more and more money in, let's, let's, let's reduce the rate so that we're getting we're not burdening taxpayers right. and we are um, uh, and we're setting a reasonable amount of money that we need in order to uh, in order to pay our bills that of course is not what's happening they're keeping the rates where they are they're getting these massive windfalls and then when people demand action of course then the fight happens at the state level mm-hmm. because the local governments don't do anything so um, just one more setup before I want to get your thoughts on this Derek um, uh, just to prove that this is happening and that, that this is a major issue you know we've done the research on this and we compare the amount of revenue, the percentage of revenue increase going into some of these mo- mo- you know, major um, uh, population centers here in Texas, and we compare that to something which you know we, we call it population plus inflation, or it is population plus inflation, which is population growth and inflation. So you know, obviously, as the state gets bigger or as inflation increases, cities and towns will need more money. But that's that's a reasonable metric to say you know compared to how your city is growing. What is the amount of you know growth and revenue that's coming in? Okay, so we look at a few cities: population and inflation, which is the reasonable metric. Uh, in Houston, grew at seven point six percent over the last five years, but the revenue grew forty six percent. In San Antonio, population and inflation grew a little over four percent, but the revenue grew eight it grew thirty eight percent. Uh, sorry to throw a bunch of these numbers at you, but want to let you know that we're not just making this up. In Austin, it was it was probably the most egregious. Population inflation grew just 10 percent, while revenue grew 70 percent. Um, so these cities and towns are taking in this massive windfall, and of course, uh, property ta- you know property owners are getting burdened. This is happening in Dallas and in El Paso and Fort Worth and Corpus Christi. Uh, Derek, what do we do about the locals? Yeah, well, I mean, this is I mean, we had this this conversation several times before. It's the locals that are really driving much of this crisis, and I think there's a little bit of uh, a hide the ball on this as well. You know, if for all politi- local political subdivisions, or say <clears throat> the vast majority of local political subdivisions, they are capped at 25 to 3.5% growth in revenue annually, pause, on existing properties. Mm-hmm. 
And you mentioned how population is growing. You mentioned how Texas is growing. You mentioned how Texas business is growing. All of these require new properties. And then that's when the valuation comes in pretty high. And that's where the, you know, the delta between what it was and what it is is going to be that, you know, the 40% revenue right. gain that's above the 2.5%. So these are the, yeah, I wanted to get yeah. into a bit. In previous sessions, they have tried to pass, you know, property tax yeah. laws, kind of not necessarily nibbling around the edges, but kind of using a targeted approach. Yeah. And and you're saying that the local governments are essentially finding loopholes to get well, out of I wouldn't of even say it's a loophole caps. because, I mean, you don't, you definitely, and even with the most, uh, you know, the local malefactors at, at all the levels, you know, you don't want to hamstring local growth. I mean, one of the worst things we could do as a state is us trying to stop the Texas economic miracle by basically forbidding growth. No, in mm -hmm. fact, we want growth, mm -hmm. but what that growth should do is then supplement some of the already existing structure. Now that growth should not, if, if the revenue is grow, going up 40%, but population's only growing a 10%, there needs to be a very cogent explanation to that and how that, why that is outside the particular mm -hmm. bounds of the revenue caps. And so one of the things that we've seen, again, and again, growth should be lauded. We should never, uh, we should never, um, push back on, you know, no, Texas to growing. Some extent, housing miracle. values should be lauded because We're, we want our value, you know, our houses to grow back. But absolutely. <clears throat> but this is where we get to the point on the property tax debate where depending on what your, you know, you know, you can ask, uh, different uh, tax attorneys, you know, you ask five of them, which uh, which is better, Senator House, you're going to get six different answers. And largely, it's going to be based on which lens through which they view uh, most property holdings, right? And now we don't need to rehash that. We don't need to microwave that up again. But again, you mentioned it's the, the fact they agree on the need, they agree on the amount, they agree on the central mecha mechanism via compression and getting at... Um, specifically school MNO, which is, you know, anywhere to almost half of people's actual property tax mm -hmm. bill. They agree on that. Now, here's the problem. And here's where I think that we need to, I don't want to say raise a raise a flag, but definitely say, hey, guys, you know, you might want to hurry, uh, is the fact that we're actually getting up to the point in the year where local governments are going to set their, um, you know, drunken sailor budgets. They're going <laughs> to have, you know, valuations are going to come in and they're essentially going to have to determine you know where we're going to be, and it's like if the, if we were to come in with this particular relief package in the middle of the process, that could upend all that. Now, look, would would that uh, you know would governments being like frozen in amber and what they can spend would that offend me? No, not one bit. Mm -hmm. But on the but the fact being is that we still need to have the locals have the ability to manage. I do need I I personally think they need a little more handcuffs on the spending side. I'm more happy to go into that. But that being said, that which we trust them to do, mm -hmm. they should be able to do that without the state interrupting that in the middle. In order to do so, then that means we have about a six week shot clock on getting on getting this particular thing done. And then you know it's one of the things where. And now, if it doesn't, if we, yeah. it's not like property tax relief goes away. It just means they missed a deadline so that we can feel property tax relief in the immediate year. Yeah. That anything that happens after that shot clock expires would be pushed off into the next fiscal year. And so we wouldn't see property tax relief until the following year instead of this year, right? Right. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, there there are other mechanisms such as a additional compression mechanism. Let me say that differently. There are other mechanisms such as an additional compression one that is countenanced by HB3 from 2019 mm -hmm. that will that might lower that MNO portion of some property taxes. Will that be enough to feel? I would I again it would that those numbers aren't available yet, but I would be hard pressed to think that that would be considered uh, you know, the 
the runoff from a bill two sessions ago would be mm-hmm. considered substantial enough to be co- declared a victory. And now, you know, um, the debate that's happening up on Capitol Hill right now, you know, I think everybody is sort of supportive in one way or another of whatever's going up there. You know, we've always kind of had an all of the above approach, yeah. um, <clears throat> whatever gets uh, property tax bills down. But that really doesn't, you know, at, at the end of the day, it doesn't solve this problem, which we've identified, which is that the local governments, I mean, you know, your city councils and such uh, are the ones that set the rates. Right. I mean, you're talking about right now. They're, they're going through this process right now of deciding how much money do we need in order to pay our bills and, and, and do all of that. So they're going to set the rates at which uh, they're going to use to generate all of that money. That's the that to me that there needs to be some at least focus on that. I don't know if that's it, you know, whether that's uh, state leaders and and, and, and um, state officials that, that need to look at that or just we as the public need to get more engaged yeah. on this. I mean, that's part of this problem here is that, you know, some people would yeah. say, well, if you don't like the decisions your city council is making, then just vote in new city council members. But ask your average person on the yeah. street, when <laughs> when are the elections for the city council? Who's running? I mean, most people are not that plugged in uh, not only to the election but then to this process. I mean, I would guess that even less people know that this is the process now where they're making these decisions. The public has an opportunity to weigh in, but of course you have to basically be Sherlock Holmes to find you know the dates and times for when those meetings happen. Um, and so it's not always uh, it's not always super transparent for the public to get involved. But I think there has to be some combination of you know the state, the public, and other policymakers uh, to 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 put pressure on the locals to do the responsible thing and set the rates at a reasonable level so that you're not getting these 70% windfalls uh, coming in. And if we're just talking now, granted, that's, you know, we're talking about revenues. We're ta- that's, you know, we can talk about it, that across all forms of municipal um, uh, taxation. The, the thing is, and what I, I've, it'll make, it'll absolutely make you sick is you need to look up the comptroller's report on uh, local debt. It, especially you get in the ISDs and you go, this is how much debt they have per student. And some of them are leveraged so much that they have, you know, you'll see, you know, for uh, you know, hypothetical, 4,000 students, but, you know, $400,000 of, of uh, outstanding debt. So and it'll be- Bernie Madoff blush. Yeah. It, <laughs> and, and so like, or, or 4 million or 40 million. And you have these massive multiples to where, you know, some districts have their per student debts and like- you know, 25, 30 grand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, if you look at that from a, a finance, a municipal finance perspective, what's the, is the, are, especially as these are like urban, now let's say urban, but urban or suburban districts, one where there isn't a whole lot of room to actually add student, a student body to that particular, mm-hmm. uh, to that particular district. And if that's the case, how is that debt ever going to get addressed? Mm-hmm. When, I mean, if people are moving out, which they are specifically in these rural districts that we talk about all the time, if people are moving out of those rural areas for opportunities, you know, in more uh, urban areas, you're not going that that base is not going to grow at the level it needs to satisfy that debt, especially mm-hmm. while they're taking on more debt as it goes. And the next step in that process, which we don't have time for today, we need to move on to some other topics. But the next question is then they're taking in all this debt and they're doing all the spending. Let's actually look at what they're spending it on. Yeah. I mean, that that could be a whole topic of a, com- a completely other show. Maybe we'll have. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, James Quintero in here to talk about that because he is, you know, he is. Oh, does you know, he have an opinion on that? Uh, yeah, he is. <laughs> he is chin deep in in some of this 
stuff. And it and it, but it's good that we have somebody looking out for that because some of the stuff that he'll pull out um, is mind boggling that they that they spend all this kind of money are the kinds of salaries that some of these superintendents you know that are <laughs> yeah. that are coming up here with their hand out you know saying you know please please you know may we have another we're so broke you know we turn around and they're making four hundred thousand dollars in their district. It's the old blazing saddles line. They're coming for our phony baloney jobs. That's right. That's right. I didn't okay. get a rump out of that guy. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So let's have a couple other topics. Just want to highlight some things that happened this week. Um, I know that the the uh, the DEI bill, the bill that would um, eliminate DEI at all public universities in Texas, um, did uh, not only pass the legislature during the regular session, but got signed by the governor this week. So that is now officially law. That takes um, in effect later this year. The one thing I want to highlight from that, something that I learned uh, through this process, is I had a really smart person tell me, you know, one time as I was kind of learning about the the, the sausage being made and you know, kind of the House versus the Senate and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they said, Brian, you need two bills. Only one of them has to be good, but you need two bills. And so you have to get something out of both the House and the Senate so that it can then get into conference committee. Um, and then in this case, um, you know, there was some concern because the House DEI bill really wasn't that good. In fact, a lot of there were some problems with it uh, where it essentially would, <clears throat> excuse me, entrench DEI or, D, you know, these former DEI officials in yeah. the system. Yep. And so, you know, then you would just end up having DEI by some other name, you know, rear its ugly head, you know, next year and the, the subsequent years, they go to conference and they make the bill a better bill yeah. and ultimately the one that came out. Um, but I thought that was interesting, yeah. you know, to, to say, you know, that's part of the process, which is you need two bills. Only mm-hmm. one of them has to be good, but you need two bills. It, it, exactly. Now, don't get me wrong. I, it would be it would be negligent to say that the final product does not get voted on in both chambers um, because both chambers need to buy a majority, uh, you know, assent to the um adoption of the conference report. Mm-hmm. But that being said is look at all the logistical pitfalls that exist along the way when it comes to just any bill. So so let's say, you know, it gets sent the DEI bill which I believe was house higher ed if I recall correctly. You know, the composition of that committee might be such where the only thing palatable to that committee would be a severely watered down version mm-hmm. of that. Not only that, then it goes to calendars where individuals in calendars committee have the ability to put a hold on the bill which I remember this passing out later in session. You know, a hold later in session tends to be more uh, uh, more existential yeah. uh, than earlier in session. Kind of that being clear. said, it needs to get set to a floor. It needs to survive a vote. It needs to uh, survive all those points of order that are going to be called on it naturally. And then it needs to be voted out. Having a husk of a bill or a, um, a bill that's less, uh, I'd say, thorough and doesn't do all the stuff you want it to do, might have less political headwinds. Now, the problem is, though, if it's too narrow of a bill, and especially when we have some of the malfeasance that we've had uh, with the uh, current parliamentarian, as we've discussed prior, mm. you know, it's going to say, oh, that's not germane. And, you know, I'm, th- when I say that, I was talking about, I was, you know, there was such an example where something, a bill was filed, an amendment was added in the House, the amendment was taken out in the Senate, thereby reverting it to the filed bill, and it going back to the House and saying, oh, well, now it's not germane, yeah. the, the bill that was actually filed. Um, but yeah, nonsense like that tends to derail it. But if you have something that's more streamlined, that could get through the process better. And then in conference report, you only need three out of, three out of the five appointees in each chamber to sign off on that, and then a majority of the chamber once the uh, report right. is called and there's up. No, and and it, once it goes back to the chamber, there's no changing it. You either no, accept it, it as is. it is or it dies. Yeah, it is an up or down vote. It's like you are taking it. It is take it or leave it, and you know whoever gets 51% wins. Yeah. 
Um, so I thought, thought that was interesting, and the, the parliamentary stuff. So anyway, I just want to highlight that um, yeah, the DEI bill now is in law. Another one that we've talked about um, here that got signed this week uh, was removing sexually explicit materials in schools. This was HB 900 from uh, Representative Jared Patterson. Mm-hmm. This is one that he championed from the be- uh, from the very beginning of the year uh, that, you know, a lot of people thought, well, this is just going to be, you know, this is going to be some cultural war stuff or whatever that is not going to go anywhere. And here we are. Uh, not only did it go somewhere, but it became one of the one of the more important bills, I think, that was passed mm-hmm. just because of um, all of the attention that had been around uh, some of these materials that were coming out um, that were shocking to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, one of the things I want to highlight about this is not just, you know, the bill. We've talked about that a hundred times. But, you know, this was one of the bills, one of the four or five bills, I thought, where the left was was obnoxiously disingenuous about yeah. what the bill did. Oh, and this the, one bill? This uh, one bill? One of the four or five that, I mean, <laughs> were just like on a new level of how obnoxious uh, the left was in in how they framed the issue that mm. were the problem or how they lied, essentially not even a problem of frame, they lied about what the issue was. Um, and then, of course, how they uh, described what the bills actually did. You know, a couple other ones that, um, that I uh, mentioned here is, you know, the, the, this idea of gender-affirming care, you know, um, and then that sort of Orwellian discussion when we're talking about, you know, these these treatments and puberty blockers um, on kids, uh, you know, they want to ignore what the real issue is by using these kinds of words. Another one we talked about, the vigilante force, you know, the so-called <laughs> vigilante force, the border force. Sounds like an 80s cartoon. Can't, <laughs> yeah. Uh, or a video game or something, you know, where, where you know, it can't, it literally can't be a vigilante force because that would be, a vigilante literally means without authority. And this is a law that would create that force. Another one is just anything that had to do with any of the transgender issues or the drag shows or whatever, all of that being quote unquote anti-gay, you know, right. as you're pulling it all in when some of these bills had absolutely nothing to do uh, with anything, you know, anti-gay. So I just thought that there was, there was a, you know, really uh, you know, on the few sessions that I, mean, you've seen a lot more sessions than this, but certainly for me, it just seems like th- this one was even more histrionic, more uh, crazy. You'd had the, the, the massive protests over SB 14 and the gender mod bill uh, where people were just saying outlandish crazy things protesters trying right. to get to get arrested and all of that um, and and so to get this one across the finish line get this one to the um, the uh, the governor's desk I thought um, was a real accomplishment yeah and it, it's it's so funny because you know it's always these like these stats that come from niche groups like if you ask about the because you know one of the big things with um, specifically the gender-affirming care stuff uh, so, as it's so construed, is the suicidality of the underlying population, which I, I, I know I shared it the other day, but, you know, a New York Times contributor uh, delved into that because I think the Trevor Project or somebody had been echoing the same uh, talking points of the fact that, you know, that there's basically, um, you know, that, that, you know, this is a life-saving intervention, which mm-hmm. it's not because... You know, the, the effect of gender affirming care on suicidality is negligible, if at all. And the, this is a New York Times contributor, say, you know, much very similar to the um, the art, article that was written up in The Economist. You know, New York Times, The Economist, all again to the right of National Review. Um, <laughs> you know, this is this is basically uh, the New York. You have to you have to drive way to the left to get yeah to get is, yeah yeah. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Washington, <laughs> so far yeah, left. you know, na- you know, Washington Post, National Review, New York Times. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. But I, I say that uh, flippantly, <clears throat> but but that's the whole thing. Is people are saying, wait, the the, the bill of goods that you've been selling us is not true. And so why do you keep insisting uh, that it is? Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, obviously this is something that's very, you know, very, it has a lot of gravity to it, a lot of gravitas. And you don't want to, if somebody is in a place where they have, you know, suicidal thoughts, you definitely don't want to be putting any due stress on that. But my, very much like suicidality, you know, affirming beliefs. Let's say somebody had an independent, was having suicidal ideation independent of any sort of gender dysphoria. The last thing Just you would want to do, anxiety, exactly. The last thing you would want to do is affirm that element of that particular diagnosis. Yeah. But what you do is when you get them help and you want to get them stabilized as fast as you can, and t- Texas should be lauded by putting a lot more resources into that particular pursuit, both uh, generally and in the schools. Mm-hmm. But that being said, is because it's such an article of faith of the progressive left, you don't see any particular pushback when they just say, oh, well, you know, we'll just have bodies in the streets and they did a die in at the Capitol and all these theatrics, all this performance, you know, I mean, it doesn't bother the members any. It doesn't bother the uh, folks who work on these bills at all. Mm But what it is, is it just shows a, a lack of understanding of how the political process works. They, you know, or, or selling the sizzle and not the steak, or they're selling the sizzle and not the steak, whereas, you know, the this bill's getting, you know, SB 14 will be signed today. Yeah. And so that's one of the things where, you know, people that didn't have die-ins but just made their compelling case carried the day. I think it just, uh, you know, for me, the, the the bigger point here is the, the way that they debated some of the left and the Democrats and some others debated these kinds of issues were so disingenuous and so dishonest. Yeah. I am worried that it will have uh, an effect on how other issues uh, get debated or maybe all the issues get debated. I mean, if you've, if you've just gone through this and someone's been calling you, you know, anti-gay or saying that you're, you know, you're responsible for the deaths of kids and things like that and then all of a sudden you're supposed to sit down and you know and talk about the budget and you're supposed you know, you're supposed to sit down and and talk about property tax or something that may not be as partisan across from somebody it's like you know what you're you're so obnoxious. I'm just going to tell you to pound sand. We're going to grab our majority. We're going to go shove everything yep. down your throat. And I don't. I mean, even if even if Republicans or conservatives are, are getting bills passed that way, that's that's not healthy. That's yeah. not healthy for the democracy. You want to have a healthy uh, yeah. opposition because I think you do come up with with better bills. But because they're they're pursuing the debate this way, it, it, I'm sure lawmakers are just like you know what. I'm not even going to mess with you if that's the way you're going to debate on this and, and call you know people names and, and do all of this, uh, you know, make up stuff, lie about what the bills do. And we're constantly having to, like, fight the media who's reporting on all these lies. You know what? Forget it. I'm just going to we're just going to pound these bills down your throat. Yeah, no, you're completely right. I, I do think that that uh, again, how many times have I said we don't know how to disagree anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, but to be but to be honest with you, though, you know, we've. You know, folks on our side of the aisle have done it too, and but they've learned from it. Right? Sure, yeah, and that, and I should I should yeah. say that absolutely happens. And and like, like like no no greater an example than constitutional carry, where I remember you know they're going to Speaker Bonin's house in 2019, you know, pushing themselves into offices and just absolutely acting a fool up at the legislature, mm-hmm. but. In 2021, they had a much more coherent message, much more calmly delivered and well researched. And look, that passed passed that particular <clears throat> passed that particular session. 
Um, all right, so uh, moving on, I'm going to hit a couple of issues because we only have a few minutes left. I definitely wanted to get to one, uh, which I thought was, I don't know, it would be funny, I guess, if it weren't so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the um, there's a, at least it's, a, it's only the committee process now. So a Senate committee voted eight to one. I mean, it still was was had a tremendous support. A Senate committee in, uh, state Senate committee in California voted eight to one to classify a parent's affirmation of the child's gender identity as part of the health, safety, and welfare of the child. Now, what does this mean? Essentially, if the child, and there's no stipulation as to what age the child is, it could be a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, whatever, if the child believes that the child is of a different gender uh, and your five-year-old boy says that they're a girl, uh, essentially, if the parent does not affirm the child's decision to be a different gender, uh, then they are violating the child's health, safety, and welfare, which is sort of a long way to say child abuse, mm-hmm. right? That they're essentially abusing the child. So that happened in the Senate in, in California and now makes its way to the floor. One state senator, um, let's see his name, is Scott, Senator Scott Wilkes said, uh, in the past when we've had these discussions and I've seen parental rights atrophy, I've encouraged people to keep fighting, keep fighting in California. Now now he says, I've changed my mind on that. If you love your children, you need to flee California. You need to flee. I mean, this is this is jarring. You know, that a state senator is saying our policies are so bad here that I'm legitimately and, and not tongue in cheek kind of way, you know, like where people say, oh, well, you know, Donald Trump, if Donald Trump wins. I'm moving to Canada. He's literally telling they're coming for your children. They're 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 violating the most basic tenets of parental rights. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be here when the dust settles. You need to flee. Right. And I think that you know, I I, I actually with stuff like this because I, I I understand the the impetus because if you look at this just through a culture war lens, it does look really bad. And to be honest, I mean, and it is really bad. But you cannot you see the animating principle and the fact that they do want to, you know, create a safe and welcoming environment. At least that's the the way that's um, the, the the support that it's laid out. But knowing as much as we do about child welfare and how that works and how this would be weaponized. That's what should give every, and that's what Senator Wilk is saying. That is what should give everybody pause, mm-hmm. is because again, you know, even when we talk here about some of the work on uh, SB fourteen, you know, one of the big things in that bill is that it doesn't criminalize the parents. And I know that that's a hotly debated bit, you know, when we've taken stones on our side from that. Mm-hmm. But using a state bureaucracy, and let me tell you, the state bureaucracy, even a conservative state like Texas, is not in your team. It's not on your team. It's not in your camp. Mm-hmm. Not your friend. The state bureaucracy, much like we see it with these superintendents, exists nothing for no other purpose but then to, for its own self-perpetuation. Using that to, to to break up families, as it will happen here in California, almost explicitly, mm. is going to be tragic. And we're so one of the things that we've avoided on our side is to make sure that we're avoiding doing that because we can't be weaponizing the state like that. But I, looking at what he said, though, in total, I don't know how to disagree. You know, California specifically, I think they have a Senator uh, Scott Weiner. Uh, who's just, uh, he just, I mean, that guy is just like an absolute harlequin when it comes to some of the stuff that guy passes. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he one of the ones who let's, let's, uh, call it MPOX just to make sure that we're not, uh, you know, being disparaging in any way, that kind of guy. Um, but that being said, it's like, it's all these ideas that more subscribe to these particular pieties, these articles of faith 
that exist on the left that just simply aren't true. And I'll tell you, though, if if some if there's a parent who wants to get their child out of California, they are more than welcome to, to come here <laughs> knowing full well this is, you know, the state is run in this certain way. We're more than welcome, you know, we're more than welcome here. And but I think they would also see that like, look, you are going to have that that uh, authority over your parents or I'm sorry, over your child's uh, development, hopefully insofar as it also applies to um, uh, education selection as well here and shortly. But you are going to have that ability because we believe in the family unit as opposed to believing that the state is your family. Yeah, we joke about, you know, people not moving to Texas or, you know, especially people from California not moving to Texas. Don't California my Texas, all that uh, kind of stuff. But if you are one of those parents and you're worried about uh, the way the direction of your state is going, particularly this way, you know, come one, come all. We will yeah. change our asylum rules or something so that you can, you know, you can come here freely. Uh, and, uh, and we still need the quarantine period. Yeah, you know, I think you, you pick pick your uh, your Dallas Cowboy jersey up at the border and you can come right in. Ooh, careful, <laughs> careful! As Houston uh, area transplants might have a problem with that. <laughs> all right, so uh, moving on, I want to hit one other thing just because I thought it was I thought it was funny uh, and a little bit of shocking, and and it's one of the issues that we've talked about here before, which is this ESG. G, um, you know, environmental, social, and governance uh, scores. So this is this is we wanted to highlight that that you know these scores and these in, indices that these that some of these uh, self-appointed you know ratings companies use, um, uh, like like the Human Rights Campaign and others. These scores about whether or not you are woke enough, essentially, um, are the ways that they coerce you know companies. You look at the you know hospitals and and major institutions and and you say, well, why are they you know why are they pursuing the you know gender modification? Or why are they pursuing these woke policies? And it's and, and it's stuff it's stuff like these scores um, that ultimately um, uh, you know that that can come to, to hurt you. Whether it's you know you be subject to lawsuits and things, discriminatory lawsuits, or or a lack of investment by investors because your ESG score is not high enough. Well, this is kind of backfiring because some companies um, you know some companies are playing along with this, and some companies you know are are embracing it because it. it it will improve uh, their their reputation. So um, apparently, cigarette companies are getting a much higher ESG score than even renewable companies like Tesla. You know, you know Tesla, which fashions itself as you know the future of cars and electric cars and not using fossil fuels. Um, well, ESG ratings are supposed to uh, uh, supposed to guide investors and their money toward what they say are ethical enterprises. But S and P uh, Global made uh, made uh, news this week when Tesla, the world's largest manufacturer of electric cars uh, gave them a lower ESG score than Philip Morris International, which of course is the maker of Marlboro cigarettes. And it wasn't just 10 or 15 points lower; it was like 50 points lower. And so, when you, as you read through the article, you find out that essentially um, these companies are gaming the system, and you know they're they're you know, looking at the the racial composition of their boards, or the or the you know the gender composition of, of various positions uh, at their companies, um, and, and they're saying, well, because because you're doing those things, then you're a very ethical company, even though cigarettes, of course, kill eight million people uh, every yeah. year. Um, uh, Tesla's not quite there. I don't. I know that there's had some. They've had some accidents with their cars, but they're not quite yet killing eight million people. And so, anyway, the, the, this is just sort of an example of how this ESG thing is totally distorts. Um, um, you know uh, what? I mean, well, frankly, coerces these companies into into this kind of thing. And of course, um, you know, you get this this product where a, a cigarette. 
company is more ethical than a an elect and then an electric car company. Um, anyway, any feedback on that, Derek? Yeah, it's 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 funny because I mean, does it surprise me? Absolutely not. And you know, Philip Morris. You know, I have no, I have no, I carry no water for them. No, nor do I bear uh, ill will against them. I think they're just a, a international product manufacturer who, you know, whose product you know might be not seen as in vogue with the times or whatever the case might be. But that being said, if you look at the way the, it, this just is lie, it just completely lays out the perfect case that all these are are arbitrary distinctions, these arbitrary ratings, and you know, we used to have a way of looking at the particulars of a uh, business and its value into the to the larger economy and that was basically return on shareholder investment mm. right and return on shareholder investment it's not a perfect way of gauging well, are they pollute because ESG is like oh are they generating these externalities which started off as just being like are they putting out a lot of pollution which now it's more just like are they putting off uh, structural racism or whatever the case might be right. and White so it, it's whatever it's whatever <clears throat> the the you know, the cause celeb on the left is and gets factored into these scores. And these scores are meaningless. Totally. Now, here's the thing. There is a million different laws on the federal level and in the state level that requires corporate disclosure and corporate governance uh, to produce documents on certain elements, whether it's pollution, whether it's human trafficking, whether it's... Um, you know how much you know power i know some of these states like require you know what's your what's your carbon footprint look like and we right. can argue about the wisdom of that that's fine that's you know that's disclosure let the people invest in who they want to invest in let the you know even these uh <clears throat> even some of these uh uh fund groups you know actually have funds based on values you know i know for a fact that there's you know catholic funds that don't mm -hmm. uh that don't send uh, don't invest in companies that have you know pro-abortion policies or, or anti-family policies and so that's one way of sorting it out but here's the thing if it turned out that all the you know pro all, all the catholic etfs were just absolutely hemorrhaging money were completely mismanaged were so far under the market average uh, that they were not sustainable, people will either go take their money somewhere else or they will say, well, now I am, you know, keeping my money here as a principled position. Is it worth, you know, is it worth that to have this particular, these particular policies that I want to see put out by the companies I support? That we call that a market process. Right. That is an open market process. The problem is now is that we have this arbitrary thing where you can take back to your board, oh, look, you know, we invest in this company because the ESG score is 100. It's like, well, what do you do? Well, we took an absolute bath in the portfolio, but. <laughs> But we invested in this high company. It's like, but we're that, good people because we invested yeah. in the company. They and, told and, us to invest. In. And that's fine. But, you know, if you look at some of the work we've done here in Texas, not only with SB 13 last year, but with, um, you know, uh, Tom Oliverson's bill this year, you know, we're getting that out of insurance because you can't let that pro get into rate making. What your insurance rate making process needs to look like is somebody looking at a particular enterprise and going, what is the risk exposure? Right. Not what is the systemic racism exposure oh, what what carbon is footprint yeah, yeah what is a carbon footprint now here's the thing if you have something where a carbon footprint's relevant to your risk exposure and i'm not talking through some tertiary bank shot where we're saying oh well climate change right right i'm saying like literally if you are putting out some sort of pollutant you know into some sort of common waterway and you might be subject to some mass tort and they're covering your lawyer's bills right. yeah that's relevant okay <laughs> nobody's saying that's not fair, that's fair but that being said is that has nothing to do with the woke nonsense we're seeing right. now 
and this is getting away from actually have actually satisfying their fiduciary yeah, duty to shareholders. They don't have any people who identify as trans on their executive board, so you shouldn't invest in them. I mean, things like that are making ridiculous decisions that are, are as you said, uh, hurting their portfolios. Why can't Tesla just identify as having a 100% score? <laughs> exactly. We should, <laughs> you put, put it back on them. But 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 you have seen, and we've talked about it, You know, some of the good news coming out, and the Wall Street Journal and other places are, are actually showing that uh, companies are worried about doing this ESG investing for those reasons, because they should be a fiduciary, and because they'll be subject to lawsuits mm-hmm. if they're making these decisions, which are, you know, might be quote unquote good for the planet or good for the culture, uh, but actually bad for people's uh, bottom lines and pocketbooks. So, um, anyway, we've talked about a bunch of stuff today. Um, we only have a couple more minutes left, uh, so we will close it right there. Uh, as always, we really, really appreciate uh, your feedback. We appreciate your comments. We, um, you know, love our, our listeners and, and all the feedback that we get from them. We appreciate you watching and, and uh, listening each week. Again, we are going to be uh, going every two weeks now uh, so that we can have a lot to talk about um, uh, between each show. And so we will see you in a couple weeks. As always, do good and risk the consequences. We'll see you next time.